It's great to be together this morning. It's good to see you. If you're a guest of ours, we are so glad that you're here. And uh, we're just gathering around the Word of God to hear God speak. God still communicates to us, and He speaks through His Holy Word. And we want to get underneath that. So this is a precious time for us to be together, and uh, it's good to see you all. Well, we've come through a, a very hard stretch of verses. John 8 has probably been the most intense uh, stretch of sermons that I've preached in my life. Uh, what a clash we have seen between these Jews and Jesus. Uh, unbelief can produce ferocious anger. Is that not right? We've seen that. Passages like John 8 can rattle us to the core. And, and I think that it's good that it rattles us. We need to get rattled by the truth. Spiritual warnings are often mistaken for insensitivity, uh, intolerance, might be labeled hate speech. Spiritual danger isn't perceived like a burning building or like a shark's fin when you're in the ocean or a tornado. So it's really easy to just overlook spiritual warnings, to disregard them. But spiritual danger is infinitely more serious than temporal dangers. And though spiritual danger is invisible, can't really touch it, it's kind of uh, intangible, its effects are eternal and irreversible. This is why Jesus is severe. Eternal things are serious and important. John MacArthur said about John 8, it is a mercy to shatter false securities. It is a mercy to shatter false securities. Can you see God's mercy in John 8? Sometimes our family, we run around in the front yard like wild people. It's kind of fun. That's, that's who the shirks are. And uh, we have a good time with it. We might race or do relays or something. And uh, let's say that one day we're running around and we're laughing and we're having a good time. All is well. And, uh, and little Peter darts down the driveway toward the road. And I look up to see him headed towards the road, racing towards the road. And I also look up the street and I see a truck that is turning in to our road and it is quickly accelerating. And let's say that at the end of our driveway there is a parked car and little Peter is behind that parked car and the truck won't see him coming. Now at that point, the intensity of my fatherly love comes out like this. Peter, stop! Get back here! Danger and love dictate the force of the warning. Let's say two of my neighbors heard me. The one who didn't see the truck thought, my goodness... He's an angry man. Everyone's having a good time and he has to go yelling, ruining it all. I wonder if he's violent. I'm not sure about my southern neighbors, but uh, I don't have a neighbor like that, I don't think. All right, so the neighbor who saw the truck said, thank God that he saw that coming and that he was paying attention because that could have been really bad. 
And that neighbor would have a sense of how much I love my son. And under the circumstances would totally understand my tone. It is a mercy to shatter false securities. My son was naively confident and along with one of my neighbors was oblivious to the imminent danger. Love is interested in more than telling people what they want to hear or indiscriminate approval of all lifestyles. Love is interested in people and objective truth. Jesus loved like that. He said things that were hard for people to swallow. He shattered false securities in order for people to hear the truth. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. And we're about ready to see hope in the face of death. Jesus showed mercy by telling the truth, and yet telling the truth earned him aggressive, aggressive antagonism. The opposition of Jesus. The opposition of Jesus. This conversation started out at the Feast of Booths. Jesus was teaching in the temple. Things quickly escalated. Some wanted him dead before this conversation started. They accused Jesus of demon possession. Some sought to arrest him. They called him a liar. And they even thought that he might kill himself. When Jesus addressed their enslavement to sin, their resistance to the truth, said they weren't sons of Abraham nor of God, but rather sons of Satan, the resistance only intensified. It's been said the same sun softens wax and hardens clay. Look at verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? The clay was hardening. Calling Jesus a Samaritan was pretty much the worst thing they could have called him at this moment. It was a racial slur. Samaritans were considered unfaithful and heretical religious half-breeds. It may have also connected back to their sexual immorality comment from verse 41. They had questions about his father, so maybe they were insinuating that Jesus actually was a Samaritan. An interesting aside, I found out during uh, preparation for the sermon that there is a theory that exists today that suggests Jesus was the progeny of either an adulterous relationship or affair or rape between Mary and a Roman soldier named Panthera. Dr. Tabor is the professor of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. He has a PhD in the history of ancient Mediterranean religions. In chapter 3 of his book, The Jesus Dynasty, which happens to be a New York Times bestseller and has some uh, very impressive academic endorsements, Dr. Tabor addressed this theory. Now, Dr. Tabor isn't sure who the father of Jesus of Nazareth really is. But he is open to the possibility of that view. Wow. Maybe the Jews called Jesus a Samaritan because like the Samaritans, Jesus questioned their exclusive right as Jews to be called children of Abraham or children of God. Whatever their meaning was, Samaritan was a strong insult. They also suggested on top of that that he was demon-possessed. It's interesting 
for as short as his public ministry was, about three and a half years or so, Jesus Christ has become the most controversial, reviled, and opposed man of history. People oppose Jesus because he told the truth, and that truth is very difficult to swallow. Jesus taught that everyone was condemned if they didn't follow him. That's aggressive, and that's deplorable unless Jesus Christ is God. Then it is right and true. In a few short months, the opposition would escalate into a mob yelling, Crucify him! Crucify him! We want him dead! We want him out of our hair! We want him gone! We want him silenced! Do you love Jesus enough to receive the strongest opposition because of him? I wonder if that's the kind of stand with Jesus that's in your life. It's worth it if you do trust him like that. He's that glorious. He's that magnificent. The glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. Watch how calmly Jesus responded. First of all, he kindly overlooked their Samaritan insult, didn't even address it, and said in verse 49, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. He wasn't demon-possessed. Luke said that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, that he was led by the Spirit. Jesus cast out demons. Jesus healed people. Jesus fed people. Jesus loved people. That's not the life of a demon-possessed man. Jesus lived to honor his Father, to honor God in all that he did, and they hated him for it. Jesus said in verse 50, Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. You see, Jesus sought the glory of his Father. That's what his life was all, all about. Yet Jesus did say, there is one who seeks it. The Father seeks the glory of the Son. Back in John 5, Jesus explained that the Father gave all the judgment to the Son so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. God wants Jesus to receive the same honor that he receives. Now jump down to verse 54. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Who glorifies Jesus? His Father does. God does. I'm probably not alone in this, but when your children do something admirable, they accomplish something really great, uh, don't you want to give them affirmation and praise? You want to tell them that they've done well. We're proud of our kids, and we should want to tell them. It's right to want to tell them that they've done something right. Now, that can be nauseating for people, so you've got to watch it a little bit of bragging on your kids. But, but we do want to affirm them when they do something, especially when that something models virtue, biblical virtue, Christ-like virtue. God is proud of Jesus, and he gives him glory. Glory that is rightfully his. In John 17, Jesus prayed to God, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Isn't that beautiful? 
That's what it's all about. He also prayed, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is so glorious that even God glorifies him. God glorifies Jesus. God glorifies God. Jesus said God is the judge. God decides who gets glory. Yet the Jews hated him. But honestly, if the Jews reject you and God is giving you glory, that's probably enough, is it not? Jesus thrived on the glory of God. God is also the judge in the sense that he will condemn anyone who rejects his glorious son. God is the righteous judge who balances all things on his divine scale of justice. As Jesus said, they would die in their sin. Now let me ask you something. Does your heart yawn at the glory of Jesus? Do you find him routine or humdrum? Listen, if God finds Jesus glorious, don't you think we should? I hope. I hope, Jerusalem Church, that you delight in the glory of Jesus. Steve and Vicki Cook are songwriters, and they encourage us in their hymn, I will glory in my Redeemer. I will glory in my Redeemer. Do you glory in the glory of Jesus Christ? On Christmas Day, a movie, Unbroken, is going to be released. It's a true story of Louis Zamperini who was an Olympic runner in a World War II POW. It's a powerful story. The book was fascinating. One of the best books I've ever read. Zamperini was held captive in a prison camp during World War II in Japan. And one day an American plane flew over the camp where the prisoners were using red lights to flash. The war is over in Morse code. Now, the pilots couldn't get down to the prisoners. They were still in the camp. They were still in prison. But in their bondage, in their pain, the message of hope was there. The war is over. Now, chapter 8 has been a caustic conversation between Jesus and these Jews. But in verse 51 is a message of the greatest hope. The hope of Jesus. The hope of Jesus. Listen to the hope Jesus gave in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He will never see death. Never? Never, Jesus? We know people who have died. It hits us hard. How do we never see death? Jesus, please tell us how we never see death. Jesus said, if anyone keeps his word, they will never see death. If they value his word, if they treasure his word, trust his word, abide in his word, obey his word, they will never, ever, ever see death. Something you don't see in the English is the emphatic double negative, not, not, that Jesus uses. You will not, 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 not ever see death. Keep the word of Jesus, and you'll never taste that death. Abide in the truth of Jesus and never die. Jesus even presents hope. Think about this, to his worst enemies. After Lazarus died, 
Very emotional moment in John 11. His sister Martha was grieving, rightfully so. And I'd imagine it through tears, probably streaming down her face, she heard Jesus say this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's what Jesus meant in verse 51. Believe in him so when you die, you live. When Jesus makes you spiritually alive and you trust him, you will never die the second death. Jesus will assuage the wrath of God and rescue our souls from eternal death. That's hope. I'm not sure what we're looking for that's more hopeful than that verse right there. Pastor and author John MacArthur has had a profound impact on my life. John is the pastor of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California. And years ago, a young man named Robert Lagerstrom showed up to a Sunday morning worship service at Grace Community Church. Robert was a predominant and respected leader of the gay and lesbian community in Los Angeles. He even led in the gay pride parade and Robert was dying of AIDS. He told someone in Hollywood who, by the way, was not a Christian, I'm afraid to die and I don't know what to do about it. I need help. I'm not ready to die. You know what that unbeliever told Robert? He said, you need to go to a place called Grace Community Church. So there Robert sat in the service, an advocate of the homosexual movement, dying of AIDS, ready to listen. Pastor John got up for a scripture reading. He was just going to read the scripture, Psalm 107. Robert heard Psalm 107 and was completely undone. It just shredded him. He told Pastor John later, you read that and I knew I was in the right place. You read that and I kept saying to myself, how do I get delivered? How do I get delivered? Where do I go? What do I do? Imagine the plea of the heart. What do I do? I'm just so lost. I'm just so much in pain. Where do I turn? He said, you got up and you preached this really long, long sermon. And the more you talked, the more irritated I became because I wanted to be delivered and you kept talking and talking. I didn't hear a word you said. Pastor John said that Robert went to the prayer room after the service, fell on his face before God, repented, embraced Jesus Christ as Lord, was wonderfully saved, and John baptized him later. God saved Robert Lagerstrom. Before Robert was baptized, he gave testimony to his friends. Robert lived on the route of the gay pride parade. And when it went past his home, the leaders of the parade went to visit him as he uh, was dying. And Robert gave them the gospel. Robert eventually died. But Robert Lagerstrom has never seen death. Hope is the confidence and the expectation enjoyed by everyone who trusts in Christ because hope derives from the fidelity and trustworthiness of Jesus. Jesus is the light at the end of the darkest tunnel. Do you have that light? Do you have that hope? Do you have that expectation? 
The Jews were trapped in the darkness of their sin and Jesus continued His appeal, if anyone, if anyone, if anyone keeps My word, he will never see death. Keep My word, keep My word, keep My word and never die. He was saying that to an angry mob. Not people who had Jesus' posters on their wall or trading cards or had His latest album. Why put hope in the middle of hostility? Love. Love. Jesus stayed and reasoned with these obstinate Jews. He warned them. He told them the truth, but they wouldn't listen. They tried to kill their only hope. No matter how bad things have become in your life, there is hope. There is hope in Christ. He is the fullness of hope. He is supreme hope. He is preeminent hope. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. The supremacy of Jesus. The supremacy of Jesus. Look at verse 52. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. That did it, folks. That sent them over. That just, bing. They had enough. Now, you have to understand what verse 51 meant. Abraham, they revered Abraham. Abraham heard the word of God, believed it, and obeyed it, and he eventually died. All the prophets received the word of God, believed the word of God, obeyed the word of God, and even proclaimed the word of God, and yet they all eventually died. Now here Jesus is, and he says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Was Jesus suggesting that he was greater than Abraham? Was Jesus suggesting that he was preeminent above the great prophets? So they asked Jesus in verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Well, that's a very important question to answer. Who did Jesus believe that he really was? Who did he believe that he was? Listen, verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. Did Jesus glorify himself? No. The Father glorifies Him. God glorifies Jesus. Now Jesus is being very direct about Himself, but He receives glory from His Father. Jesus tied everything back to the authority and the glory of His Father. What a thing to say. Think about that. God glorifies me. God glorifies me. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus was building to the apex of verse 58. See, God exists to glorify Himself and to enjoy His own glory forever. God's triune existence is a relationship of glorification between the three persons of the Godhead. It's an inter-Trinitarian glorification of Father, Son, Spirit. So if God glorifies Jesus and he does, then God affirms the divinity and the supremacy of Jesus and must greatly enjoy the glory of Jesus. 
You are preeminent if God declares you to be preeminent. Jesus continued, But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Unlike his audience, Jesus actually knew God. He knows him very well. They were lying. They didn't know God, yet they said they did. Jesus was right to call them liars to their face. They were the worst of liars. If Jesus conceded, if he just gave a little bit and said, okay, okay, you're right, I don't really know God, then he would be a liar just like them. This is a tense moment. He did know God. And on top of that, he perfectly obeyed God. He kept God's word all the time. Here's who Jesus believes himself to be. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews fired back, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Now, you see what they did? They twisted his words slightly. But the point is, they heard him suggest that he was around when Abraham lived. And that Abraham rejoiced in his day. Jesus was in his 30s. The math is not adding up. Now it's unclear as to exactly what Jesus meant. If you read different commentators, they're all over the place on this. Sometimes check out Genesis 3.15. You might want to write these down. Check them out later. Genesis 3.15, Galatians 3.8, and Hebrews 11, the entire chapter. Check those out. And I think that you'll have a better understanding of what Jesus probably meant in this passage. Here's what I think. Abraham saw Jesus Christ from a distance through the gospel promise that God would raise up a messianic offspring through the line of Isaac. Abraham saw Jesus in God's promise to him and he saw many who would believe in Christ, a a people, a mass of people that are a people because of faith and trust in Christ. Whatever Jesus meant, the point was that Abraham rejoiced and was glad in the supremacy of Christ. For Abraham, Jesus Christ was the exceeding joy of his heart, the overwhelming joy gladness of his life, his forever and unending delight. This is why Abraham was justified before God because by faith Abraham took joy and pleasure in the future reality of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, he saw it and was glad. He directly implied in that statement that he was the source of Abraham's exuberant joy and therefore was supreme over Abraham. Hmm. In fact, Jesus is the message that Abraham and the prophets received and delighted in. Jesus believed himself to be preeminent above Abraham and the prophets whom the Jews revere. Jesus claims supremacy as the fulfillment of the great messianic promise, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Jesus implied that he was the offspring of the promise to Abraham. Folks, please think about this. When you see and savor the supremacy of Christ, when Jesus becomes preeminent in your life, 
above every other pleasure, above every other joy, above every other peace, above every other pleasure or comfort, then you will taste your greatest joy and pleasure by surrendering all to Christ who is supreme, who is sovereign over your life. Jesus is sovereign and divine. The divinity of Jesus. The divinity of Jesus. You know, this is perplexing, but some people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Now, if someone asked you and said that to you, how would you defend? How would you answer the question if someone asked you or said Jesus never claimed? Where would you turn? What would you say? Well, there's a good answer. Did you know that the Muslims believe in Jesus? I don't know if you know that or not. Jesus is in the Quran. Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet of God, born of the Virgin Mary, and that he performed miracles by the power of God. Some Bible scholars, some professing Christians do not go that far. Maybe this is why a student from Messiah recently told me that one of her professors said in a lecture that Muslims worship the same God as Christians. (laughs) But there are significant problems with that. Muslims don't really believe in Jesus. They reject the crucifixion and the resurrection. They believe Jesus is dead. They reject the Trinity. They reject the divinity of Jesus. They reject that Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh and consider Jesus to be none other than a Muslim. The Quran denies that Jesus ever claimed divinity. Now, you might find this amusing, but for a Muslim, believing that Jesus is divine and worshiping him as God, like we as Christians do, is a heinous sin. That's not the amusing part. Do you know what the specific sin is called? It's called the sin of shirk. S-H-I-R-K. There goes my ministry to Muslims. I'm out. I am sin to them, apparently. Islam considers Christianity polytheism. And the divine Jesus has no place in their satanic religion. Please understand what Jesus meant in verse 58. To say Jesus never claimed to be God is flat out historically and intellectually dishonest. John 8, 58 is probably the most obvious claim to divinity that Jesus made in the Gospels. I would call it flagrant. A flagrant claim. Because he's making a clear allusion to Exodus 3.14 where God self-identifies himself as I am. A connection that the Jews immediately would have made. Verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He had just said, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And now he was saying, before Abraham was, I am. It's unmistakable, folks. Jesus believed he was God. It makes no sense to say Jesus is some great moral teacher. Don't think he was God, but he was a great moral teacher. That is absurdity. You either believe he was God or he's Satan himself. I don't know. Because to say, I'm God, and you're not, whacked out people say these things. They're still saying it. 
In case they missed it from his previous I am statements, now it's unmistakable. Abraham lived approximately 2,000 years before this conversation. So his statement means that he existed before Abraham existed, but it means a lot more than that. Jesus did not say before Abraham was, I was. He didn't say that. Jesus used the present active verb implying he pre-existed Abraham. He always was. I am. Jesus claimed eternal existence. I am is the name that God gave himself. Jesus claimed divinity in other ways too, like he was glad to receive worship from people. He didn't deny that. When he claimed unity and uh, shared glory with the Father, that was a way to claim divinity. He, uh, God actually said that Jesus was his beloved son at the transfiguration And when the Jews accused him of blasphemy and making himself equal with God, that was another confirmation. But John 8, 58, that's just plain. It's flat out plain. If this was not a claim of divinity, we have to ask the question, why on earth did the Jews pick up stones to kill him on the spot? Jesus holds supremacy. Folks, I say this over and over again. It's the purpose statement of our church, and I want you to live this. I want you to know it. I want you to eat, sleep, and breathe this. Jerusalem Church exists to lead people to find their greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ above all things to the glory and worship of God. Why put above all things? Why say above all things? Because of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. There is nothing you or I could experience that would make us more happy or fulfilled or satisfied or hopeful than the joy and pleasure we experience in Jesus Christ. That's why we must enjoy Him as our greatest joy and pleasure because everything else will be painfully insufficient. And Jesus is how we never see death. He is supreme over death. So if you know the one who reigns over death, imagine what standing that puts you in. Harry Houdini was no doubt one of the greatest escape artists of history, if not the greatest. One of his most astonishing acts, they got this uh, milk can, they filled it up with water, they stuffed him down in there as he's chained, and then they locked the, the milk thing, and they put him in, the, in you know, they, they didn't show him, I don't know what they call it, but they put him in something, and you can't see what he's doing, and then out he comes in two minutes. And you're like, whoa. Uh, Houdini once offered, now this is going way back, he once offered $100,000 to anyone who could escape from the cups that he took along with him. Houdini was masterful, but Jesus performed an extraordinary escape from angry and murderous mobsters, from mob violence, something not so predictable as a manipulated milk can because you could pop from the inside the milk can off and come out very easily. They've exposed how Houdini did it. But he was masterful at it, but Jesus was more masterful, is my point. The escape of Jesus. The escape of Jesus. Verse 59 says that they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. No justice, just mob violence. This is what our our law calls a rout. When you have intent to do something terrible, some specific crime, some disturbance of the public peace, but you don't carry out your intent, Had it not been for the escape of Jesus, it would have turned into a riot where they actually carried out this uh, assassination or murder as a mob. 
Now keep in mind, they did this where? In the temple. They tried to kill Jesus in the temple, a place of worship. They didn't care about justice. They only cared uh, about stopping Jesus in his tracks, getting rid of him. Now their law said to stone blasphemers, which they believed Jesus to be. Leviticus 24, 16 says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Two problems. Jesus wasn't blaspheming. And number two, there was no trial. The vigilantes went to kill him apart from a fair trial, but Jesus escaped and that ended the conversation. They would meet again, however. It, it could have been a miraculous escape when you think about an angry, murderous mob picking up stones and you just hide yourself in the middle of the mob. Uh, it's not so easy to shake off a mob here, but he did it. Jesus had other escapes that the New Testament talks about. Jesus escaped because in the sovereign plan of God, he would meet a cross. I wonder what John 8 has done in your life. I wonder how it's moved you. I wonder how it's challenged you. I wonder how Jesus' tough words have woken you up. Are you closer to Jesus because we've studied this tough chapter? Do you love Jesus more because of these words? I wonder if the severity and seriousness of your sin is more profound to you now, hearing how Jesus really feels about some of these things. I wonder what you hear in his words. Do you hear mercy? Do you hear love? Do you hear only condemnation?